Would you uh, join with me as we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word. Uh, Father, we are a sinful people, and your word is holy. And we naturally are not inclined to love it or submit to it or to agree with the things it says about us or about you. And so, Lord, we pray that a miracle would be done right now, that you would incline our hearts to hear your word proclaimed and to cling to it rather than to our own hearts and what they would naturally love. And I pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. I want to say, brothers and sisters and unbelieving friends who have gathered here as guests, this passage, these passages, we're going to be reading three chapters today. They focus the word of God, the truth of God, the justice of God, not in ways unlike other passages of Scripture, but perhaps they will shine a light on our own view of sin and our own hearts and of justice and our own worthiness of condemnation. Maybe the focus is a little more, more, more focused and maybe painful than other passages. But as that happens, I would remind you with every single text that does that in Scripture, for those who are in Christ, for those who are part of God's covenant people who belong to him by grace, it also magnifies the love of God for those who are his people because it shows the sin and the wickedness that was ours while he saved us. Let those two things be very clear. We're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 13, and, and before we do, I want to I even label this first portion that we're reading, the first Messiah fails to keep the word of God. The first Messiah fails to keep the word of God. So we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. 
When the, peop- when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering for me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God which, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. We'll stop there. The Lord God's people's security and redemption, as we've seen already last week and the weeks before, it it now rested, their security and redemption, it now rested on God's covenant with them and their anointed king. Specifically, it would not be how good their king would be with a sword. Not how well he could hold on to a spear, Not how he could keep a shield, but how well he would keep the word of God, which was the scepter with which the Lord reigned over his people. Their hope was in part bound up in the covenant that God made with them and also their king and how their king could keep the word of God, not how he could keep a sword. And Saul immediately fails at that challenge. He wanted to redeem the people of God from their enemies. He was willing. Saul, the head and representative of Israel, he fails to keep the word of God on their behalf, which was the most important part of his role as Israel's human redeemer and king. But he was, however, the perfect representation of Israel's hearts and desires for a king. They didn't want a king who would redeem them by keeping the word of God and leading them to do the same. They wanted a king who would redeem them by keeping their word and who would be ruled by their hearts. But their hearts were opposed to trusting themselves completely to the wisdom and strength and promises spoken by the word of God. And so the Lord, through Samuel, condemns this action of Saul I want you to see this as the mercy of God. Mercifully, though the Lord could have permanently given his people over to a Messiah of their own heart's choosing, 
because of great love for them, he declares that the kingdom of Saul would not continue, but instead the people of God would not be, continue to be his, but would be handed over to a redeemer after God's own heart. A man of God's own choosing, rather than a man of Israel's own choosing. And that phrase has sometimes been used to talk about how David's heart was the same as God's. Now, there is some truth to that. The thrust, however, it seems to be that Saul and Saul's approach to redeeming God's people represented Israel's choice, the desire of Israel's hearts. However, David, in the way in which the Lord would redeem Israel through David's reign, represented God's choice, a throne and redemption which flowed from the desires of God's hearts. God will not save by human might or wisdom or beauty or wealth, things that Saul had in spades. He will not save by those things. He will save people by his word. And he would pick a king and a throne for his people by which he would accomplish that redemption. Israel's hearts longed for a king who would rescue them in ways which allowed their hearts to remain proud. God's heart longed for a king for his people through whom he would redeem them from their enemies, but also from the sin of their own proud hearts. David, who we've we've not yet met in our journey through 1 Samuel, we'll shortly meet, did have a heart more submissive to the word of God than Saul did. That did make him a better choice than Saul. However, we'll soon see also that David's heart was sinful. Murder, adultery, pride. And unless David had a son somewhere down the line whose heart was without any sin, whose heart was a perfect reflection of the word of God, without David being able to hand his throne and messiahship over to a greater son to fulfill the role of Messiah, Israel would be in the same position with David as they would be with Saul. Not only do they have to be rescued from the sin of their own hearts, which did not submit to the word of God, but so did their representative now, their head, their king, their substitute. So we needed a Messiah, an anointed king, who would redeem us by keeping the word of God for us as our representative and then lead us in keeping it in response to our redemption. And we are gathered here today to rejoice that David did have a son whose heart was not just better than Saul's, but whose heart was pure. And our redemption is secured Because as our representative in our place, he kept the word of God for us. And so our hope is not bound up in our own ability to keep God's word. And neither is it that Saul will keep God's word for us. Or that our prime minister or any other world leader will keep God's word for us. Our hope is that Christ kept the word perfectly in our place. And then he took the punishment we deserved for failing to keep it just as Saul and David after him failed to keep it. Christ died for our sin and then rose from the dead on the third day. He then also defeated our sin, the slavery which our hearts were gladly enslaved to. Gladly enslaved to rejecting the word of God. 
And so he makes his people no longer glad slaves to their own hearts, but glad slaves of the word of God. Compelled to keep the word of God. And so praise God that the last Messiah was not like the first. You see, the word Messiah merely means anointed one or anointed king. Another translation would be Christ. And the first anointed king of God's people added to his people's condemnation. But the last one, the final one, absorbed it in his body on the cross. That brings us to our second point, which is the Lord's word of salvation triumphs in spite of the sinful Messiah. So I want to invite you to watch together as the Lord's word of salvation triumphs in spite of the sinful Messiah. Watch the Lord graciously keep his covenant promises to Israel in spite of their sinful hearts, which were represented by the king, which they had demanded. So let's continue reading. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shuel. Another company turned toward Beth Horan. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day Jonathan, the son of, of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go down to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahidah, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozas and the name of the other, Shina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over the, gar the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to them, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison 
hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it as were a half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was, dispersed, was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark went at the time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was take, talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into camp, even they also turned to be with the, the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. We'll stop there. The Lord is merciful, and he works redemption from the Philistines. And we see what the Lord does. Notice how hard-pressed they were. No weapons other than the ones in the hand of their king and his son. Now, they were learning that the Lord's great redemption of his people would come not only because of the Messiah's leadership or the inspiration of the Messiah, but they were, they were being taught to learn that their salvation, their redemption would be one which their Messiah would work for himself on their behalf. In spite of their own inability to fight, the Lord would give them a Messiah who would fight on their behalf. They're beginning to learn these things. And so brothers and sisters, see how the Lord works redemption for his people. Notice that this is not just a people who had not yet shown him obedience. But they, it's also not a people who could say, well, we haven't yet shown disobedience to the Lord. They had shown him disobedience already. Even after Saul's disobedience, the Lord still remains faithful to his plans to redeem his people. And so if you have repented of your sin and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your God. And he's not your God because you have shown him you're worthy. Not even because you've not yet shown him that you're unworthy. Brothers and sisters, you have already shown him you are unworthy. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, he will be faithful to redeem you. Your heart is as wicked as the hearts of Israel, which moved them to demand a king like Saul instead of the Lord. And the Lord redeems sinful people. That's going to bring us to our third point, 
which is this, the first Messiah's unholy oaths condemn his righteous son. So we've just seen Jonathan. We've just met Jonathan, Saul's son, the heir to Saul's throne. And we're, we're led to believe, if we don't know the rest of the story, of course, we're led to believe that perhaps Jonathan is the man of God's own choosing. The choice which comes from God's heart rather than the hearts of sinful men. Jonathan is courageous. He's self-sacrificing. He is all that his father is not. And the word of God just, just took a pause to remind his people that, that God will still be faithful as their redeemer in spite of their unfaithful Messiah. But, but now God's word continues its demonstration on why Israel's desire for redemption was not as good as God's desire for their redemption. And as we see Saul failing, as the representative of Israel's hearts, we see the wickedness of Israel put on display through their representative Saul. So let's continue reading in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it, it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand out to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge or the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father has strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my, people has tr my, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become brighter because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or sheep or and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, 
O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, and the people escaped. And Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? In Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when, the, when Saul saw, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So the oath of the first Messiah and the command of the first Messiah condemned his righteous son, Jonathan, to death. Well, you get to see here why it is good news that God rejected the Messiahship of Saul. And we can praise God that this Messiah failed to keep his promise. Remember, Saul is the kind of Messiah which is the fruit of our heart's desires. And we can praise God that the last Messiah's oaths are for the good of his people. The last Messiah's oath, Jesus Christ, are to redeem his people rather than to condemn them. And that Jesus Christ, being God himself, he cannot break his oaths. He cannot make a foolish oath and he cannot break any oath which he gives. Because it is impossible for God to lie. And so the first Messiah fails to keep his wicked oath, but the last Messiah, Jesus Christ, did not fail to keep his holy oath to not curse his people, but instead to bear that curse for them on the cross. God tears Israel away from the king who breaks his wicked promises. And his intention is to give Israel fully and finally to a Messiah who makes and keeps good oaths. That brings us to our fourth point. The first Messiah fails to carry out the judgments of God's word. So God's word now shows us another messianic responsibility. Redemption is one of his responsibilities. We see that 
But this next responsibility is one which our hearts may or may not long for. But it is a responsibility which flows from the heart of God himself. And it will confront our hearts. What we think of sin, what we think of God and of justice and our own worthiness for condemnation. What we think God owes the world. God instructs Saul to carry out a terrible judgment upon a sinful people. And Saul fails as the first Messiah to bring the justice and wrath and vengeance of God upon the earth because he was blinded by his own thought of gain and self-glory. And let's read this passage. Chapter uh, 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Ahavilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and his people and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel arose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. 
But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to, sa- oh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great de- delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to the Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother at me so your, chi- your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. This is a terrible story. And it doesn't come without context. And now the best way to, to find the context for any passage of the Bible is to look at the first book, Genesis, and then to look at the last book, Revelation, And then to look at what the Bible will tell you is the heart of the Bible, the cross of Jesus Christ. In Genesis, God tells Adam, he tells us that Adam was told on the day which he disobeyed God, he would surely die. Yet when he did sin, he didn't die. Instead, God provided a sacrifice. An animal died that day instead of Adam, a substitute. God killed an animal to cover up Adam's nakedness and thus his sin. And from that moment forward, every breath which Adam and all his descendants breathed would be an act of pure grace. There's not one breath that God owes one human. Condemned to die immediately, and yet we're living and breathing and rebelling against God with the breaths with which he has given us. And Genesis also teaches us that in Adam, we all fell in Adam. Yes, we do inherit the dignity of being born in God's image. From conception, this is ours, and it is given by God and inherited from Adam. You do not need to wait to see if the child will become an image bearer. They don't need to prove it to you. They are immediately an, an image bearer, born in the image of God. And that's inherited from Adam, a gift of God. But with that, being from Adam, we also inherited a corrupt and sinful heart. 
We are born sinful. We don't become sinful. We sin because we are sinful, not the other way around. And so King David, the second Messiah, he fell deeply into sin, committing adultery and killing the woman's husband in order to cover up that crime. And when he was brought to repentance, through the Holy Spirit, he diagnosed his problem as a corrupt and sinful heart, which had always been sinful. In Psalm 91.5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so the law of God when expressed in human laws, it does have a category for innocent people. We see this throughout the prophets as well. The law of God, when it's expressed in human laws, it does have a category for innocent people, people who are not guilty of breaking the laws of the land. And that's going to include young children and law-abiding adults. And that is because the laws of men, even if they are shaped by the laws of God, they cannot deal with the human heart. They don't have access to the human heart. But this does not spare us from the judgment of God. Because when it comes to the heart, our nature, who we truly and really are deep inside, God declares each and every child of Adam guilty. It won't, be, it won't need to be something given to us from the outside. It will come from within. And so Paul describes this in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So, all who are in Adam, born from Adam, are born in sin. Amalekite children, Canadian children, Israelite children, with a wicked nature deserving of the wrath of God, with hearts that hate God and do not want to be rescued from hating God. We certainly might want to be rescued from the punishment of hating God, but we do not want to be rescued from hating God. The kind of heart that demands a human king instead of God. And Adam perfectly represented us. He made a wicked choice, but it was one which being of him, we would have also made and which we demonstrate given enough time. It's the proof, says Paul, that we have all sinned together with Adam is that we all die. Without exception, humans die. But we can also go to the last book of the Bible to understand this command given about, by God to the first Messiah, Saul. In the book of Revelation, we see the end of time revealed. And we see the Messiah, Jesus Christ, returning and bringing judgment upon all the world. Nothing left, completely consumed, utter destruction. Death comes to the entire world at his hand. And he is given the responsibility as promised by God to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. It is his responsibility to conquer sin and pour out God's wrath and judgment on the human race to crush evil. That's his responsibility to carry out God's justice to make sure that no sin goes unpunished. 
There's no one conceived by human parents who is not made in God's image, but there's also no one conceived by human parents who is not guilty. And so the command given to Saul is a foreshadowing of the command which is given to Jesus Christ, which he will carry out his second coming to judge the world and to bring utter destruction. Nothing and no one left. And we're hearing the cries for justice in our world today. People are crying out for the guilty to be punished, for justice to be done. And God does promise justice for all who have sinned against us. And this annihilation of Amalek was promised long before. It was promised to Israel that justice would be done for Amalek's wickedness toward them when they were a landless people. It was meant to be a balm. It was meant to be a medicine, a comfort to victims of abuse and other crimes to hear that justice will be done. Human laws shaped by God's laws also promise to provide justice and punishment against those who break God's laws. But also what is more true is that God is a God of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, not vengeance is wrong. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord in the book of Romans. And so we're quick to declare people guilty without evidence sometimes, and then we can cry out for them to be punished for justice. But when it can be proven that justice hasn't been done, it is good to cry out for human justice, and then also even for divine justice. We are, however, too selective when we long for justice to be done. For as we rightly demand that God punish the evildoer, we also condemn ourselves. And the last, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come and he will execute judgment. He will do it perfectly. Which means that no human, no matter the age, will be unpunished for their sin, sinful hearts and the sins which they committed out of their sinful hearts. And what we cannot do and what we are forbidden to do with a, a, a human nation or even religion is, is forbidden to do is to put ourselves in God's place. We are for now left with human justice, which can't judge the heart, and which is only permitted to judge and punish crimes against human laws. So trying to do what Saul was told to do would be very wicked for us because it would be putting ourselves in the place of God, the Messiah. To do this would be putting yourself in God's position as a heart judger. Now also to suggest that the the judgment which God's Messiah would bring is not good enough. And so governments have the ability to take lives based on outward crimes committed against just human laws. But only God has the right to take life based upon the sin of the heart. So any nation or religion which attempts to do what Saul was commanded sins by denying Jesus Christ and making themselves God. Israel was comforted that the crimes that were committed against them by Amalek would be punished, that Amalek would be wiped out, it would cease to exist, it would be utterly destroyed, and that's meant to be a comfort, that this nation would be destroyed, there would be nothing left of it, 
And that will one day be true of every single nation. With the exception of those within the nation who have repented and believed in Jesus. There will be nothing left of them. That this did not happen to Israel was meant to actually be shocking to them. You're supposed to read in the Old Testament and think, okay, when is this going to happen to Israel? And it never did. Yes, they were punished, but God always left a remnant. They too sinned like the nations, and they had received more grace than the other nations. They had, no one had any excuse, but their guilt was multiplied by the grace and kindness which God showed them. Why was Israel also not wiped out like the nations? Israel was never permitted to believe that Amalek or any other nation was being wiped out because they deserved it more than Israel did. This is a pattern we see in human religions which try to imitate what Saul was commanded to do. The question ought to be asked is why not, not, not why Amalek is wiped out? And at the end of time, why is the whole world going to be wiped out by Christ? But why did Israel get wiped out like Amalek? Israel did not get wiped out by, like Amalek during the time of Saul. And then at the second coming of Christ, why is it that we see sinners in heaven with the Christ instead of being crushed when he executes his judgment as role, as his, in his role as Messiah? And so we've looked at the first book of the Bible, we've looked at the last book of the Bible, the beginning and the end, but then to get the fuller picture, we look at the heart of Scripture, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the first time the Lord Jesus came as Messiah, he took the sin and the guilt of the hearts and actions of the people whom God gave to him before the foundation of the world. He drank the cup of God's wrath. Now that was his responsibility to make sure that cup was empty. The end of time, that cup must be empty. No wrath, no judgment, no condemnation left. No sin un paid for it. His responsibility as Messiah to make sure that cup is empty. The justice of God cannot be lacking. Nothing left. And so for the church, instead of pouring it out on her, when he returns the second time, the first time, he drank it instead of her. Saul misused his role as anointed king. He denied justice, which God's word demanded for his own benefit, but we see Christ doing the exact opposite. He fulfilled the justice of God at a great cost to himself. We see that Israel was just as guilty and worthy of death as Amalek, and we see this because Samuel tells her that disobedience, that rebellion, is as the sin of divination. It's the same as witchcraft. It's the same as idolatry. So how do we take this passage now? This and similar passages highlight the awful truth that you are not innocent in God's eyes. Simply because you're innocent in the eyes of the laws of men that cannot see your heart. Just because you have not done enough to go to jail doesn't mean you aren't guilty in God's sight. Just because you haven't picked up a sword to fight against the Lord doesn't mean you haven't rebelled in him. And so do not try to imagine that human somewhere around the world without a sinful heart. 
He doesn't exist other than Jesus Christ. They are all just like you. And the word of God applied to your heart, if you were honest, it condemns you and puts you and all of Adam's race in the place of Amalek. God is not like men who change their mind about these things. He has sworn that all sin will be punished, and he can't be bribed. He can't have his mind changed by making it worth his while. This is what it means when it says God does not repent or regret like a man. God ultimately doesn't want sacrifice. He doesn't need them. He, he did command sacrifices, of course, and at that point, Israel was to offer them out of obedience, not because the Lord needed them. Saul fa- failed to carry out the justice of the word of God because he had found a way to benefit by denying justice. But God is not like Saul. You cannot hope anything you do can blind God's eyes for justice, which he has sworn. You cannot make it worth his while. You have not made it worth his while. He's not like human kings who regret and deny their oaths for justice. And that brings us, very thankfully, to our last point, which is this. The true Messiah would be a man of God's own choosing. So then, if we are all in the place of Amalek, condemned by the law of God, and and part of the Messiah's responsibility is to bring death and damnation to all who have sinned, what hope is there for us? that the Lord would reject Saul. The man of Israel in our own heart's own choosing as Messiah, and he would replace him with the man of God's own choosing. Let's read verse 34 of chapter uh, chapter 15. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Earlier in, in 1329, or sorry, 1529, the Lord declares he's not like a man who lies or regrets, and now he declares he regrets making king, Saul king over Israel. So what do we make of this? He condemns Saul for being a king and a judge who's blinded by personal gain, whose mind can be changed by a bribe. It's not what the Lord does when he rejects Saul. He's rejecting the choice of Israel's sinful heart. And God had anointed and chosen the man of his own choosing before the foundation of the world, and he would not turn from that. That man was not Saul's son, but was David's son. And if he were not on our side, if the Lord had not provided him to us, we would be lost. The Messiah whose responsibility was to ensure that all sin was paid for, and who will punish all unpunished sin when he comes a second time. He came first to bear the punishments from God on the cross for his own people. And you, like all in Amalek, were condemned from the moment you were conceived because your heart hated God. God would tear the people away from Saul, the first Messiah, and give it to David. David would reign justly over God's people, and he would eventually bequeath his throne to Jesus, who would fulfill the throne and the reign established by God for David's house. It wasn't Saul's son, but David's son, who was the man of God's own choosing. 
who kept the word of God perfectly as his people's representative, who swears and keeps oaths to redeem his sinful people, and who ensures God's justice is perfectly done, first by taking it himself and then giving it in full. So it is foolish to hope that the Lord's Christ will not pour out God's wrath on all sinners. That is foolish. God will not be like Saul. He will not refuse to bring judgment. That cannot be your hope. Our only hope is that the Messiah of God's own choosing would, out of great love for the church, take the wrath of God that we deserve before the time of judgment comes so that when the cup would be poured out, nothing would come out because Jesus drank it dry. So brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, the Lord's Messiah will come soon and he will bring utter destruction to the world, all nations, utter destruction, nothing remaining. Being innocent in the law, by the laws of the land, even those given by God, being innocent by the laws of the land will not justify you. Not being a criminal cannot be your hope. Being honest with your business partners, paying your taxes, it may keep the justice of the land at bay, but it will not keep the Lord's justice at bay. Your heart condemns you, and you will only escape his justice if Christ bore it for you on the cross. Before the battle of Jericho, the Lord gave the same commands to Joshua that he gave to Saul, the same. And Rahab the prostitute believed in the Lord and renounced her citizenship of Jericho to join the Lord's covenant people, and she was spared. The Kenites, a group within Amalek, were instructed by King Saul to flee the coming utter destruction, and they did. And their only hope was not in victory, And it was certainly not that God's judgment wouldn't be done, because it would be. Their only hope was in repentance and fleeing to the mercy of the Lord's Messiah. So brothers and sisters, friends, do not trust your innocence. Run from your heart and run from its desires, from the things it would want from God, from the things of your heart's own choosing and flee to Jesus, who is the man of God's own choosing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we tremble at your word now. And often there's times when we read your word and it is things that we would like to imagine we would have written. Delightful things. But days like today, we read things that we would certainly not have written. But Lord, that exposes the sin of our own hearts and our own misguided view of justice and innocence and even our own misguided view of your love for the church. And we are reminded that you do not love the church because she's innocent but you have loved her before the foundation of time knowing she was certainly not innocent, far from innocent, was quite guilty. With a heart that didn't even want to be rescued from hating you. And yet in love, you sent Christ 
who would ensure that the cup of your wrath would be empty, but that he emptied the church's cup by drinking it himself. And Lord, I pray that that would be our hope and our confidence, that we would reject the Messiah of our own choosing, of our own ideas, of our own desires, and that we would run to the man of God's own choosing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.